You digging this uh, cloud cover today? How great is that? My word. Seems like an October thing that we're getting to enjoy in September. So, but by the way, it's September now, in case you didn't know. Some of our calendar people are like, really? Oh, my word. So I just want to welcome you here today. Great to see you. And I want to welcome you on this Labor Day weekend. Thank you for being here. I know Labor Day has got us kind of going lots of different directions. So we appreciate you making today's service part of your weekend plan. So it's great to see you today. Well, here we are. We are in week four of a series called This is a Football. And talking through this idea of what does it mean to get on God's page, get on the same page related to his objectives for his church. And that's what we're doing. Rather than jumping out ahead and trying to get all detailed with strategies and different ways to get there, we're going back to the basics and we're learning some great things. We're in week four today. If you're visiting for the first time, this is uh, not too far in. We're only in chapter two. By the way, if you have a Bible, electronic Bible, book Bible, want to open it to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians is in the New Testament, and uh, it's right after Galatians. And if you couldn't find Galatians, then that's right after what? Yeah, we don't know, okay? <laughs> Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. So find a Corinthian book, go a couple more later, okay? And uh, sorry about that. You guys on your Bible drill, you are not ready, right? You're like, <laughs> if you start me in Matthew, I can get there. So uh, no, we're, we're, uh, we want to get you there in your Bible. You have a notes in your program, your worship folder, get those out, and we'll, uh, we'll be able to track together. But here's where we've been. Paul has started us out with some basic introductions as to who he is, the writer is, and the audience he's writing to, the church, the believers at a city named Ephesus. And he's introduced us to the owner of the team, as it were, being God, his one and only son, Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead. We too, we learned about this amazing reality. The language was rich about what it meant to be former slaves, redeemed, and not just set free from, but set free to become literally the heirs of God and just blew our minds. Last week, we got into Paul's prayer. He's very vulnerable in saying, when I think of you, this is how I pray for you. And we he prayed for them that they would know, not just knowledge-wise, but experientially, the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. So it leads us now into to this next week. I want to tell you from the beginning, as we kind of launch into Ephesians chapter 2, that today should mess with you. This material, it's not so much what I have to say, but the material of the Bible, the scriptures that we're looking at, should mess with you. And this is what I mean by that. They should unsettle you based on really no matter where you're at on a spiritual spectrum. When I say spiritual spectrum, what I'm saying is, for those of us here today who have not yet put our faith in God, this is going to be challenging. And, and it's going to be at times even um, maybe painful to process. But I want to give you hope from the very beginning that the bad news actually leads us to the great news. For those of us who've already put our faith in Christ, what today should do is be reason to cause great joy. And great, great just ability to say, God, your grace is amazing. I sing about it all the time, but what does it mean to actually be made alive when formerly I was dead? So today has that power, very little to do with the preacher, but all to do with the passage. And so as we dive in today, I'm, I'm shooting one over the bow so you can kind of be prepared and not be angry with me. Okay, so let's jump to it. Number one in your notes, you were dead. 
You were dead, you were enslaved, and condemned when you were in sin. Notice the operative phrase I'm having you fill in is so interesting because it's such the contrast to what we've been learning about in the book of Ephesians of what it means to be in Christ. But in sin, this is the reality, being dead, being enslaved, and being condemned. Now, think of it this way. When you think of, when you hear good news from other people about certain things, Think about the times, though, that make good news great news, and that usually happens when you know the context. So like, for instance, if you hear someone say, hey, I'm I'm feeling pretty good today, really good today, you go, oh, that's great. But when you know the context is that they suffer from a a degenerative disease that makes almost every day painful, that's great news. When someone says, hey, I got my paycheck today, no, it's good. But when you know that person has been unemployed for eight months, that's great. When you hear that your daughter arrived home safely, she gives you a call, hey dad, I'm I'm good. That's always great news. But when you especially know that she was driving with a friend with a 1983 Yugo with 361,000 miles, okay, that makes that great news right there because you were praying all the way home that she was going to make it. So, so, So good news becomes great news when you know the bad news. Okay, and that, I, I've been a firm believer of that for a long time. And related to our state of where we're at in a relationship with God, that is very, very true. The good news becomes great news when you actually, even just more than mentally understand, but you actually, in a soulish way, you understand the bad news. And so I think that's the intent of Paul as he begins us into this passage. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 begins with the words, as, as for you. Now, those, those phrase, that phrase is, is a phrase very interesting because you never mean it without a sense of contrast. So it'd be like this. It'd be like, hey, Johnny deserves a reward for his accomplishment. But as for you, right, and you know the next words that are going to be said are not going to be good words. Okay, so Emily was paying good attention to the email that I sent out. But as for you, bad news is coming right? And, and we, we know that. That's just the way our vernacular, our language works. Well, that's the way that Ephesians 2.1 begins. But as for you, so we're talking about a strong contrast coming out of some incredibly encouraging words. Paul says, I pray for you this way, but as for you, read with me, chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This is bad news. And Paul means it to be so. What I love, what I hope you begin to develop an affinity for with the scriptures, I love that there's no small print. Now, like we've said, if you have bad eyesight, it's all small print. But but the idea is, is that God does not pull punches. He tells you the truth. I want to know the truth so then I know what to do with it. Rather than living some veiled existence, I want to know what the truth is. Paul says to the Ephesian church, but as for you, your history, your past was grim because these things were true of you. There's basically three ideas he's putting out there for them to understand. Number one, they were dead. 
They were unresponsive to spiritual stimuli. Number two, they were enslaved. They were enslaved to the ways of the world, of Satan, and of their own fleshly desires and thoughts. And finally, they were condemned, deserving of the wrath of God. That is what we call bad news. But stick with me today. I promise we're going to resolve it in a good way. First off, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? That's that first phrase, but you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, first off, it can't mean dead, dead, the way we think of it, because look at some of the phrases. They were following. Physically dead, people don't follow anything. They were living among them and gratifying fleshly cravings. These are, these are things that, that physically alive people do but who simultaneously are spiritually dead. So it has to be a different dead than what we're thinking of. The way that I like to phrase it is that they were spiritually unresponsive. Spiritually unresponsive to to stimuli in their lives. Meaning they could hear this very same truth of the word of God that someone who is a believer could that would mean nothing seemingly and here would mean everything. So that's the idea. Think of it this way. I had the incredible privilege of teaching at a Bible college extension campus. If you've heard of Eternity Bible College, begun by Francis Chan in Simi Valley, they they had an extension across our desert in Lancaster, and I would go out for a few semesters. And I had the privilege of teaching the book of Ephesians. And as we were there processing for a whole semester with a group, a small group, about 15 students, 12, 15 students, one thing that we came to understand, I really wanted the class to be more than intellectual information, but I wanted it to be something that would change their lives. And so as we did, we began taking very seriously praying for our relational worlds. We prayed kind of through the book of Ephesians, even like the prayers in chapter one and we'll find in chapter three. And as we prayed for our relational world, what we kind of came upon was this, the very best kind of prayer that I can pray for someone in my relational world who doesn't yet follow Jesus is simply this, God, wake them up. God, there's a King James word, quicken. The Holy Spirit would quicken someone, would bring, bring them to life, bring them to the point that they are able to be responsive to spiritual stimuli. And I found that was a wonderful way to pray for the people in my world not yet following Jesus because everything I'm going to do and say is against, as it were, or spoken toward, given toward someone spiritually unresponsive. Watch until God does a work in their lives. We keep realizing that salvation is so dependent upon God's work in our lives and others' lives. And that's what that kind of prayer recognizes. In your notes, Warren Wearsby put it well in his commentary. He said, the unbeliever is not sick, he is dead. He does not need resuscitation, he needs resurrection. Now, if you're here today and you are a follower of Christ, let me say to you that this was true of you. Some of you have been walking with the Lord for a long time. This is even hard to remember. Remember I said today's going to mess with you. If today doesn't do something to you, this text, again, not the preacher, but the passage, then you, just like I've had to be praying about and considering this week, God, if this doesn't affect me, there's something wrong in me because this news is too great not to be moved by it. This was who you were. The people in your relational world who don't yet follow Jesus, this is still where they are. And that should move you to action. That should move you to be thoughtful. Not only were you spiritually unresponsive when you were categorically in sin, but this passage tells us that you were enslaved 
to oppressive forces both inside and out. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we were using the imagery of the slave up on the box, we talked about the idea of being enslaved, but never really said enslaved to whom or enslaved to what. Well, today we find out just a few verses later in chapter two. We find three things. You followed the ways of this world. We'll, we'll see that phrase throughout the New Testament especially, and it describes a world system. Now, when I say world, I don't mean some necessarily like, um, oh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Some, some dastardly group of people just really trying to do everything against God. It's the idea that being in a fallen world, there are systems in play that are naturally against the grain of the character and nature of God. So things like oppression, things like racism, things like materialism, those things are against the grain of God. And yet when we were categorically in sin, at times we would just give sway to them even follow in their footsteps because it was a system that we knew no better alternative to. Secondly, you followed Satan and his influence. You'll notice when you read the passage, Satan is not named per se, but look at the phrase used. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. Track this contrasting idea. Remember we said last week in Paul's prayer He was praying that they would know the power of the Spirit of God who was at work raising Jesus from the dead. It's the exact same Greek word describing the Holy Spirit's power and now being attributed to Satan's power, who was at work or is at work among those who are disobedient. Now, for many of you, this is a bit appalling. You would take umbrage even with me with you'd say, now, come on, Todd. I never was a follower of Satan. I never kind of raised my fist, hail Satan. In the 80s, I didn't even listen to satanic rock. I mean, I didn't do any of these things. So why would you say I was a follower of Satan? And and that's a fair question to ask, a fair thing to process. But in this, what the reality is this, is that you were following him according to Ephesians 2. You are following him nonetheless, even if you didn't, as it were, ascribe it to his name. You see, part of the reason you might not have known you were following Satan is because he's the father of lies. He's very veiled in the way that he rolls. And how do you know that he's lying? His lips are moving. He would convince you of things like this. You needed to cheat because you had no other choice. In another case, you needed to lie because it was prudent. And you'll deal with the consequences later on. You gave sway to that addiction because you were escaping the pain that you were going through and thought it justified the ends. You bought the lie that you need to be good to yourself because nobody else will. Uh Uh-oh, be good. No, no, I shouldn't go there. Okay. (laughs) You followed the desires and the thoughts of your flesh, of your sinful nature. And the Bible says this this third category now to to follow the, the idea of your own flesh that you're not only spiritually dead on arrival, but that you also had a tarnished nature, a sinful core that permeated every part of you, including how you think and how you feel. Like, oh, Ty, that's pretty harsh. Look at Romans 8 in your, on your screen. But the mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. This is, this is bad news, intentionally meant so by the Apostle Paul because he's helping us arrive at a conclusion. 
See, what was the result of our spiritual unresponsiveness? What was the result of our enslavement to sin? Well, if you are a holy and just sinless God, you only have one play, condemnation. That is the only choice that a holy God has. Now, where Paul had been originally in this passage saying, you all, it's actually an allusion back to chapter one in two places where he's kind of contrasting the Jew and the Gentile. That will be made vividly clear next weekend. But for now, he's talking about you all as Gentiles, you were this. But then in verse three, but we all lived among them. This is true of all of us. All of our human lot is in the same place, in the same reality. There is no one who gets out of this. No one that this doesn't touch. Notice the solidarity that we have as human beings, all deserving the wrath of God because we were not only all in sin, but track with this, we were also all in Adam. What do I mean by that? In the screen, Romans chapter five, verse 12. Therefore, and and reading through Romans five, you know this is talking about Adam because it says it earlier. Just as sin entered the world through one man, And death through sin, the natural consequence to sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. I don't know about you. Maybe even in this moment you're feeling this. But I don't know about you, but if you've ever struggled with the fact of God, how am I responsible for what a guy in a garden thousands of years ago did? How is that on me? Right? How is that my fault? I wasn't there. I didn't do it. I remember as a kid seven, eight years old, being frustrated by that. I must have heard that at church that day. My parents might have been talking to me about it, but the idea that I'm a sinner in part because of what Adam did, just feeling like so unfair by that. I'm complaining to my mom. She's tucking me into bed at night. And and when I'm saying this, mom, it's so unfair that I am held responsible for what Adam did, that I'm a sinner now because he sinned. I remember my mom without even batting an eye, without even any hesitation saying, Todd, if it wouldn't have been Adam, it would have been you. You're getting it. You're getting it. Which, by the way, first service was awesome. Nothing. And I'm like, I don't even know what to say right now. So thank you. But I'll never forget, my mom was so right. And she was so sharp and right on the moment because it's true. Not only for Todd, but for you. Somehow, I don't understand it, but somehow you and I were in the garden. We were in Adam when Adam chose to violate God's ways and do his own thing. And the ripple effect we have all been living in ever since. You are not only a sinner by nature, you're a sinner by choice. And if you just take a moment to examine your own life, you know I'm right. Now it's important this, let me explain. When we use the word wrath, Wrath is a very misunderstood word, especially related to the Bible. Here's what wrath is not. Wrath is not the out-of-control rage that you might ascribe to wrath of an abusive alcoholic. That is not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not an emotive blast. Women in the crowd, please forgive me, but I love the phrase, hell hath no fury, right? Like a scorned woman. You get out of her way because everything's getting mowed down. This is not the wrath of God. But that is wrath. (laughs) This wrath, in your notes, is the right response 
The wrath of God understood biblically, it's the right response by God in eradicating all that is not in line with his character. The wrath of God is the right response by God eradicating all that is not in line with his character. It'd be the idea of cutting off dead wood. I brought a stick. This has become a walking stick in my family's lore now, but this stick, potentially, imagine it is like a, a branch, and as a branch connected to a tree, when this stick be, or this branch begins to die, the longer it stays engrafted in the trunk with the rest, it's going to spread its death to the rest of the tree. So what does a good attendant do to the tree? Cuts off the branch. This is dead wood. It's not coming back. We eradicate it. We remove it from the trunk. What else was God to do? What else was God to do with his rebellious creatures deserving of justice? And I want to tell you, I've told you, I was going to tell you the bad news first. I told you this is going to mess with you. I told you this could even be painful to listen to. But here's my point. Don't check out. Because what God did next, you never saw coming. In your notes, you are alive. You are freed and you are enthroned in Christ. Look at the contrast. In sin, we were just the opposite of all these things. We were dead. We were enslaved and we were condemned. But now, just the opposite, complete opposite contrast is true because we're in Christ. Look at this. Ephesians 2, these great words, but God... But God, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. What does that, what does that passage deserve? Say it with me on the count of three. One, two, three. Yay, God! This is great news. You stood, I stood condemned with no hope. And the right thing for God to do was to deal. But praise God that he dealt with us in a way we didn't deserve. Because this is what we deserved. We deserved his rightful wrath. But God says instead, I'm going to deal with this a different way. God reached out to us and he changed everything out of his love for us. Paul rightly uses the word mercy in your notes, easily defined. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Okay? This is what every child begs for once they've blown it. Do you remember the game? I remember as a kid playing that game Mercy. Remember that? You'd take your hands and web them with someone else. I was horrible at this game. So once I learned a few times how badly my wrists would hurt, I'm like, no, 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 I'll watch. But kids with the brutish wrists, they loved to do this game and they'd lock their hands with you and they'd turn them around and bend them backwards. And the only way they would release, what would you say? Mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. It's a great way to consider the action and the response of God. 
What did we discover that we learned at the end of verse 3 that we were by nature deserving of wrath? Now we see chapter 8, verse 1 of Romans. Look at the screen. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. For what? Those who are what? In Christ Jesus. Look at the thickness. I know we're looking into Romans, but on and on and on in Ephesians, we're going to see the glory of what it means to be in Christ. Notice that that phrase doesn't say, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who do good things. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who go to church a lot. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are religious. None of those things are present. It's simply based upon the fact of what it means to be in Christ and the fact that I don't have to do something to merit good from God. God just says, I did all that for, the, uh, for you at the cross. Be found in him, and that is sufficient. That's what it's about. That's where our hope is found. So look what God addressed in our needs, just the contrast of what we saw earlier. He made us alive with Christ because we were dead. Now, we'll see in this sequence, there's three verbs in the Greek that all are connected with a thought that says with. So it's beautiful language. The first one, we were made alive with. Who needed to be raised from the dead we saw in our prayer last week? Jesus, Jesus died for our sins, so needed to be resurrected. We were somehow with him. And that's such an incredible, powerful thought to think about of resurrection isn't something we just look back on 2,000 years ago, but resurrection has somehow happened to us. He raised us up with Christ because we were formerly enslaved. This second verb refers to Jesus' ascension, and again, it's that word together with is the concept that we've been somehow raised together with, where once we were chained and shackled to the world, to Satan and to the flesh, now that we are in Christ, your chains have been loosed as you ascend with Jesus to the right hand of the Father. Simple question for you today on this Sunday morning, September the 4th, do you feel connected at that level? Do you feel like you've ascended somehow with Christ to the Father? And I think if you're honest, you'd probably say, no, not, not really. Can I ask you a question? Did you feel that you were somehow back in the garden with Adam? I didn't feel that either. I know the effect of it, but I, I don't feel anything about being there. In, in a world where we're trapped sometimes uh, living according to our feelings, can I tell you, in the same way you don't feel like you were in the garden, you might not feel that you've been ascended with Christ, but both realities are true. How do I know? Because the Bible says so. So the solidarity concept, we were somehow in the garden and now we are somehow seated with Christ, that is something by faith I have to believe. I have to take that and say, this must be true because the Bible says so. In the same way that we had the solidarity in Adam, now we have a solidarity in Jesus. And that, by the way, was the flow of Romans 5. In the same way that sin entered the world through one man, life entered the world through Christ. Jesus is the new Adam. And that's a cool picture. Finally, what did God do? He enthroned us with Christ because we were previously condemned. Think about this word picture. Just, just kind of maybe close your, mind, close your eyes for a minute. Don't close your mind. Close your eyes. <laughs> like, Todd, I'm not listening to a word you say. Uh, close your eyes for a minute. Get this word picture. How equally amazing is the image that a couple weeks ago we were slaves who were bought, we were redeemed and brought home to be heirs. 
is the idea this week of being on death row. You were dead. You were on death row. And now not only being pardoned, the king has not just said you don't have to die. The king has also chosen you to sit with him and rule. The word pictures in scripture are replete. Open your eyes now, by the way. You're so good. I'm afraid you're going to fall asleep soon, so don't do that. But the word pictures in scripture are so rich. And they, they're, meant, they're, they're numerous, they're multifaceted because they're meant for us to dwell upon them in different ways at different times. Maybe a few weeks ago, that idea of a slave who'd been redeemed and brought home as an heir, it just resonated in a powerful way for you. And maybe today, the thought of being on death row and being pardoned and asked to come up and sit next to the king, that equally will resonate something within you. These are all pictures of saying what God has done. Notice the purpose statement. Remember I told you, and you're going to keep finding out, almost it's going to make you sick, how much I love the purpose statements of Scripture. We read one. It said in that phrase, like, why? Why did God do this resurrecting, ascending, and enthroning? Why this? In order that, in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. you have probably felt the weight of being condemned before. Condemned is a powerful word in our English language. We only use it for a few things. If a building is unsafe to walk in, literally those in charge are afraid that if you walk in, it might crumble on top of you kind of unsafe. What do we do? We condemn the building, no longer fit. And what's gonna happen to it? Needs to be torn down. Chances are in your life, in different relationships, and it's usually from an authority figure, you have felt condemned. And wearing that weight, that burden is huge. Because you, you feel as though it's a weight you can't get rid of, you can't get off your shoulders because it's so heavy. In, in that same truth, and, and by the way, we're not even talking about the creator of the universe or what it means to be condemned by him. But don't, the story doesn't stop there. Think equally how powerful to not only have the weight, the burden of condemnation, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Not only to have the burden of that off your shoulders, but look at that purpose statement. So that, in order that, God could show you for all of eternity how deeply he loves you. This is why you've been saved. This is why you've been rescued. This is why you've been adopted into his family. And God wants to show you for all eternity how much he loves you. You can't find a greater contrast of emotion from face on the floor condemnation to eternity showing you his rich kindness this is the stuff of salvation. When the Bible talks about the gospel and uses the word good news, literally that's what the gospel means, we agree with it because it's great news. By the way, in your home groups this week, you're gonna have a question on this specific phrase. What was God's motivation? I just gave you the answer. Make sure you answer appropriately. <laughs> and we finish today almost there with our hallmark passage, for it is by grace. 
It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Can, as you process the logical train of thought of Ephesians 2, when I, I love the fact that Paul would say, there's no way you can boast about this new standing that you have in Christ, but as you follow the logical path to where we've gotten today, you would say, duh. You can't boast in any of this because you realize who you were and where you stood and now you realize what Jesus has done all on your behalf. And you say, exactly. There's nothing I could have done to merit or earn this. This is all in act of God. I was dead. There's no credit I can take for being made alive. And as we process that idea, again, a reminder of the definition of grace. We looked at the definition of mercy. Grace is the opposite side of the coin. I just said opposite. That's a great word. Grace is the opposite side of the coin. It's getting what you don't deserve. If mercy is not getting what you rightly deserve, then grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's a beautiful picture of that reality. Here's the story. Here's what's happened in Ephesians 2 today. God, the righteous judge. There is this great hymn that's been kind of retooled, and I'll sing it every once in a while at a camp or somewhere else, but, oh man, I should have got off the words. I'll, I'll do it next week. But it's this powerful phrase that the just... God the just, he has to judge and deal with sin. You don't want to follow a God who doesn't. You don't, I guarantee it. But God the just looks away from you and judges his son in your place because justice has to be met. But you reap the benefit of this great exchange. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, this passage I love so much. God made him, talking about Jesus, God made him who had no sin, completely sinless and innocent, to be sin, not just wear the weight, not just bear sin, became all that he had wrath towards to be sin for us. What? Another purpose statement. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. See the exchange. Jesus the righteous becomes sin. We the sinful become righteous. How could you ever lay claim to that? How could you ever say this was something I did? God forgive us all when we ever feel that way. This is all an act of a merciful, gracious God who loves us so deeply. So what do we do? How do we respond to this amazing grace? Number three in your notes today you live as the functional art you were intended to be. You live as the functional art you were intended to become. You're like, Todd, what is that about? Ephesians 2.10, last verse in our sequence. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here's the definition of functional art, if you've never come across it. It's unique and individual pieces of art that fulfill one of life's purposes, at the same time as being an aesthetic feature to enjoy. So you're not just that, that word that we saw up there, you are God's handiwork. That is the Greek word we get our English word poem. You are God's poema, his work of art. He's done something majestic in you. And, and as we're talking today about all this incredible standing from dead to life, we might think that's what he's talking about. I think instead he's thinking about in this reality, of what God has done in your situation, your purposeful standing, he has made you with design. 
He's made you to live out his purpose for your life, and you are indeed a piece of functional art. John Stott said it this way, we are both exhibits of God's skill and trophies of his grace. And I love, I love that succinct way of saying that. I came across on the internet a lady named Laura Matana. Laura Matana is a Brazilian artist who for the last 10 years or so has been making art out of dead things, dead wood specifically. And as we talked about this earlier, this, uh, this picture of something that would be cast aside, something that needed to be extracted from the hole because it was wearing everything else down, it was working against the nature of the tree, is taken out, but look how it could be redeemed. Look how it could be used for a greater purpose that actually completes a picture for us today that God says that while you were in this place, not only not only dead, I've actually made you alive and I've actually made you with purpose to live out all that I've designed you to be. Can I say this today? Every service that I've been here for, I have finished our time with a prayer and we have intentionally given you an opportunity to respond, these A, B, C's. A is to admit. Admit that I I lived in this, I am in this world. That's what that means. I I admit that I'm a sinner who is living out that nature, living out that separation with God. But I believe that Jesus has done all these things we've talked about today. He has provided a way for me to be in him, to be truly rescued. I believe he's the only savior available and now see choose. I choose to live out his design and purpose for my life. This is the gospel. What we've unpacked today is simply another beautiful dimension of the gospel. And my prayer to you today is this. If you're here and you've never responded to this great news, not Todd's great news, the Bible's great news, if you've never responded to it, my simple question is why not? What's keeping you back? Because this is what it's about. For us this week, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna live out our game plan, be amazed by God's grace that created you with purpose. This week, bask in the reality of how God has loved you so and live, live out his purpose for your life. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today just so richly thankful for this truth, this amazing grace. God, be it far from us to be a people who can be complacent about grace, who can look at this passage without a sense of deep gratitude and thanks for what you've done for us. And if you're here today and and you're in that spot I mentioned a minute ago, and you have not yet responded to this great news My prayer for you this week is simply that God would be waking you up. You see, I can't do anything to convince you of your need. I can't do anything to tell you how sweet it is to walk in salvation and freedom. But the Spirit of God can. And my prayer for you this week is that God would have been waking you up so you come to a point very soon, even now in your chair where you say, Jesus I recognize how badly I need you. I believe that you did what I could never do. You made things right. And I want to follow you with my life. You can pray that prayer.
And the Bible says your eternity will be forever changed. Father, thank you for your sweet, sharp love over our lives. We're so richly blessed. And we pray all because of Jesus today. Amen.